Welcome, everybody. Thank you for joining us at uh, School Psych Podcast tonight. My name is Rachel. I'm a school psychologist in Maryland. I'm really excited about our guest tonight. Um, he was in on uh, the faculty of, of where I went. I went to University of Buffalo. And so um, I got to see a little bit of his lab and, and volunteer a little bit in there. And it was really a great experience to um, give me some knowledge about research and how labs work and things like that. So I'm, I'm really excited to um, see what's been going on since, you know, long, long ago since I've been there, my brief kind of two years, but um, it was good. So I encourage anybody who's out there, um, you know, in grad school right now, see if anybody's doing research and, and see if you can, can learn from that. So that was fun. But I'm going to pass it over to Rebecca, who's going to tell everybody how you can participate tonight. Rebecca. Hello and welcome everybody. We're glad that you're here, whether you're watching live or watching the recording or tuning in on iTunes or Stitcher or Spotify later. We're just happy that you're here. Um, if you are watching live, we'd love for you to tune in to, to log in to your YouTube account because you can comment right alongside the video and we can add your comments, questions, ideas right into our discussion tonight. And that's always really fun and helpful. We can also, if you're watching the recording, we can also continue the conversation over time. So feel free, even if you're not watching live, to comment. Those comments live right alongside the video and they attach themselves to the timestamp um, where you were listening. So it's really helpful, a helpful way to um, continue the conversation. Also, if you'd like to send a sort of more anonymous or private message, you can inbox us on either of the Facebook pages, um, School Psyched, your school psychologist. There's a post right at the top of the page for tonight's broadcast or the dedicated podcast page called School Psyched Podcast um, on Facebook. And on Twitter, we're at, uh, at Podcast Psyched. And please use the hashtag Psyched podcast. And I'll be looking for notifications and we'll be looking for any way you are tuning in, listening live or later um, for a great discussion on tonight's topic. And now I'm going to hand it over to Eric, who's going to introduce our amazing guest. Thanks, Rebecca. Hi, everyone. My name is Eric and I'm a school psychologist in Connecticut. And we are excited to have Dr. Gregory Fabri Fabiano with us this evening. And looking forward to hearing about his expertise in the ADHD field and assessment and interventions. Um, before we get started, I just want to tell you a little bit about Dr. Fabiano. He is a professor of psychology at Florida International University. He is a core faculty member in the Clinical Science in Child Adolescent Psychology doctoral program and the Center for Children and Families. His program of research has focused on the development, validation, and implementation of effective assessments and interventions for children with attention deficit and hyperactivity disorder and their families. Um, and his research uh, areas have been effective assessments for children and youth with ADHD, as well as parenting interventions and school-based interventions. So we're excited to talk with you tonight, Greg. Welcome. Thank you. Um, what uh, what's going on in the field of ADHD? It's a certainly a buzzword, a catchphrase that we all talk about, and um, and as, just as we were talking before the podcast, perhaps over identify in some areas and under identify in in some areas as well. Um, what's uh, what's current? What kinds of things are you focusing on lately? 
Yeah, that's a that's a really good question. Uh, if you wanted to work in a field or an area that could be controversial, you would pick ADHD. In fact, I stopped telling people on airplanes when they say, what do you do? I just say, oh, I, I work with children. I don't say ADHD because I'm signing up for probably about two hours of questions or comments or opinions or different thoughts. And all that misses the, the real point that uh, ADHD, if we keep the kids at the center all the time, is really just a way to say uh, behaviors related to excessive overactivity or, or too much inattention are causing the child problems in daily life functioning. And so we always try to center all of our discussions and all of our plans for research on what can we do to make this kid's life better? What can we do to make the, this child's parents less stressed out? And what can we do to help teachers be more successful in, in educating the child? So most of our work focuses on looking at different uh, types of uh, approaches that, that might uh, turn the volume up a little bit on the effectiveness for kids with ADHD. We know, we know for a long time there are treatments that work, but there's been a, a disconnect now for a number of years. In the 90s, we did. there's a real uh, initiative to figure out what's going to work. What are the efficacious treatments? And I think we did a good job identifying those. What we haven't done such a good job is then providing those tools to parents and caregivers and coaches and uh, other uh, people that work with kids in a way that they can use them. So I'm happy to talk about some of our contemporary research. We have a a study that we're doing right now for young for the great kindergartners. So if you uh, think about any school district in this whole country, the state has defined when you can enter kindergarten for many of them, right? It might be September 1st or in New York, it's December 1st. And it turns out if you're young for the grades, so you're born in those months right before the cutoff, kindergarten teachers already know this, uh, that you may um, end up having more challenges or struggles in your kindergarten year relative to the older kids in your class. And after COVID, it's a little even nastier because some parents may have, if they had the privilege to do so, held their kid back a year because they didn't want to risk their kid being in a congregate setting or having a risk of a virtual year. So if you're that young for the great kid this year, you might have kids a whole more than one calendar year older than you. And so they're going to be able to grip pencils better and listen to directions better. And as it turns out, if you're that young for the great kid, you're more likely to be rated by teachers on behavioral checklists as having ADHD-like behaviors. Um, but if they're making a relative comparison to other kids, that might be an incorrect rating, right? And actually result in overdiagnosis. Uh, what we really want to do is make a developmentally appropriate rating of that child relative to other four-year, nine-month-olds, not a four-year, nine-month-old compared to a five-year, six-month-old. And so we have an, uh, I'm happy to talk some more, some more about it, but we have an intervention approach that we're testing out to see if that helps these perhaps vulnerable kids uh, on a pathway to getting diagnosed with ADHD, uh, maybe shift that pathway. On the other hand, we uh, are doing some studies with kids that are well diagnosed with ADHD. They uh, meet all the diagnostic criteria. They're a little bit farther along in school. And we're looking at a response to intervention or an MTSS type approach to intervention where we're really in a dedicated way uh, uh, applying universal positive behavioral supports with the teacher and then using progress monitoring to evaluate if they need more treatment. And if so, then we set up a daily report card and then we progress monitor that. And then only if those first two things have not worked would they get randomly assigned to meet with a study physician to consider medication 
or one of our behavioral support specialists to uh, implement more um, intensive positive behavioral supports with the general education teacher. And we want to look and see if that uh, approach compared to business as usual, we do it in a real, in the way it's written up, like it's supposed to work, whether or not that works better than school as usual. And we have a bunch of other stuff going on that we can chat about as we go along as well. Before we um, had, had gone live, we talked a little bit about, um, you know, in, in the schools, at least I see a lot of um, putting things on IEPs or just throwing things out there. It's kind of like throwing whatever at the wall and seeing what sticks as far as ADHD. Like, let's do social stories. Let's give them alternative seating. Let's give them a weighted blanket. Let's like, um, and so... I, I, I never know because I don't have the ability or the time or maybe the inclination to sit down and be like researching all these different things that I'm constantly kind of bombarded with. Um, what, any advice for sifting through or what, what is research-based, you know, extended time, everybody gets extended time and repetition of directions and, and what, what things are, are good <laughs> research, solid things and what things are just kind of well, I'm a little hesitant to say this to an audience of school psychologists, but maybe uh, this will resonate with school psychologists, too. I, I've been um, thinking about this a lot lately, and I think that uh, the uh, educational um, sector has done an incredible disservice to kids with ADHD since in 1991 when they determined that we could shoehorn the diagnosis into another health impairment category, which had nothing to do with ADHD at all, right? Uh, and um, and then we said a little bit later, well, 504 accommodation plans can probably fit for that too. And we've sent parents on missions to Badger school districts to uh, my child needs an IEP, my child needs a 504 accommodation plan and uh, sent kind of the false hope that that's gonna be something that's gonna help the calls from the teacher stop coming home every day or the child having to spend lunch in the office because they were misbehaving. and. Instead, what has happened is we've been cre created an enormous amount of bureaucracy and enormous amount of assessments, which probably at the end of them will result in either a 504 accommodation plan or an IEP that sends that child right back to the general education classroom they came from with the referral to begin with for the majority of their day, maybe provide some ancillary services like speech or OT or PT, which aren't gonna address any of the core referral problems that uh, likely drove the teacher to make the recommendation, the parent to make the recommendation in the first place. And then it's gonna have a lot of other accoutrements that are probably non-evidence-based or, or not gonna really move the needle for the kid. Uh, extra time on tests, a fidget spinner, um, some kind of other device. Um, when the fidget spinners first came out where I was on vacation and I asked my daughter about them, I said, oh, what are these? And she said, oh, there's the kid in my class that is always in trouble has one of those. And I said, oh, what does he do with it? And she says, well, every time the teacher turns her back, he whips it at somebody. And I thought, oh, great. Uh, what kind of intervention do we have here? And then she said, uh, and now that he doesn't have that anymore, right? So that was something that they were hoping was going to help. So I, I think, and I'll be honest, I think that uh, we've gone the whole wrong way with uh, emphasizing IEPs and 504 accommodation plans. And I view 
the MTSS approaches that are coming um, down the pike and are now being widely deployed in schools is exactly what we should be doing for kids with ADHD. We should be equipping general education teachers with tools that can help them get the most out of the positive behavioral supports in their classroom. We can have professionals like school counselors and school psychologists then consulting with teachers with children that don't respond to those initial tier one or universal interventions with more tailored positive behavioral supports. And they, those are the people that we want setting up the plan, evaluating the plan, look at the fidelity of the implementation of the plan, and then tweaking or adjusting the plan as you always might need to do. And then reserving referrals for uh, IEPs uh, or special education supports for the smaller number of kids with ADHD that might have a broader array of concerns related to their learning or their behavior or their emotional uh, abilities and competencies. And we'd have more resources then to really help those kids that really need the help rather than flooding the system with a number of kids that um, ultimately are just going to end back in that general education classroom needing supports there like when they started. And I guess the one last thing I'll say about that is that the current system, I think, uh, by virtue of the, how long it takes to get interventions in place, uh, the fact that um, referrals don't always result in more interventions or more formal supports, um, it inadvertently is increasing the number of kids that are getting medication for ADHD when they might be um, effectively supported and treated with school-based positive behavioral supports that uh, the, the educators and the school professionals are using effectively. And I think if or if they start medication, maybe a lower dose would be effective in the classroom because they already have a really strong positive behavioral support system in place. And that a smaller dose with fewer side effects uh, would help move the needle just enough to get them to a place where they would be more successful in the classroom. And if anybody debates me, what I would say is look, look at the long-term follow-up data on kids with ADHD and their long-term academic outcomes, uh, financial outcomes, societal outcomes. They're all abysmally poor. If our American education system was a Fortune 500 company, it would be bankrupt because it was not, uh, or at least in terms of ADHD outcomes, um, because compared to kids without ADHD, Kids with ADHD are less likely to graduate. They, their um, lifetime income is considerably less. Uh, one of the most recent long-term studies my colleague Bill Pelham did uh, um, looked at kids at 30 years old with ADHD that they'd followed up from childhood. And this is a sad finding. The most common outcome was that the children were still living at home with their parents, not employed. They're not putting money in 401ks. They're not uh, um, in a job or a career that's probably giving them uh, a lot of self-satisfaction or success. And uh, when I work with a kid in my clinic, um, I want them to have reached those goals and reach those potentials. And so uh, that is something I think we can do a better job with. Not to bring the talk down, but I think that's something that uh, is important to consider when we think about what we're gonna, where we're gonna put our effort and our resources for helping kids with ADHD. Yes, I agree. That's so important. And I I, um, I think that what confuses me about um, like sort of best practices and positive behavior intervention and support and what kids who have, um, you know, the whatever combination of uh, weak executive functioning that contributes to their ADHD is that the recommendations or the practices in both um, for both, they seem good for everybody, right? It's it's not that they're differentially better for kids with ADHD, uh, like you know, 
highlighting or repeating directions or, you know, having three places in the classroom where you can fig find out what you don't know or what you need to know. So things like that, like simple things. And then, of course, like um, positive feedback for things that they're doing well and all of that. But are there any of those practices within PBIS that are especially sort of necessary or helpful with kids for kids with ADHD? You make a, a great point. Uh, ADHD is just a label that sets a, a really a, a, a um, uh, dividing line at six symptoms of inattention or six symptoms of hyperactivity, impulsivity, or both. If you have five, you don't have ADHD, but that doesn't mean you're any less worthy of classroom interventions or supports and right. And good ethical providers would still be working with the five symptom child uh, and not waiting until they got bad enough till they were a six symptom child. And if you were to tell me this child has ADHD, I would have no idea what was going to be the best treatment for them just by virtue of the label, right? I would need to know all kinds of other things about the child, like what their strengths are, what where, what are their areas where they're showing some weakness or needs for growth, um, what kinds of resources are available already in the classroom, what background interventions are going on, is the parent already involved in doing some things, right? All of those things are really important. And if I was going to be really effective in uh, putting a good uh, sort of system of interventions in place, I, I would do a good functional behavioral assessment, and then I would uh, determine what I was going to try out based on my best guess, and I'd have a good progress monitoring plan in place, and I would continually adapt until I found what was right. And uh, for most kids with ADHD, um, to, to one of your points, uh, I do uh, think it's important to acknowledge that they do live in a different world than a kid without ADHD. So if we just, just for a minute do the thought experiment and think about what it might be like for a child with ADHD in just one single morning, right? So we know that a kid without ADHD never goes to the principal's office, has never gotten a failing grade on a test, uh, always turns their homework in. When it's fun Friday, they attend it, right? Like th those things are taken for granted. If we think about just a single morning of a kid with ADHD, let's just imagine uh, it's time to get up. Their parents set their alarm uh, 45 minutes earlier than they really needed to because they're getting up early because they know that they need the extra time to make sure that their child makes the bus. And they knew that, okay, I talked with that counselor and they told me I need to be really positive. And so they go in and say, rise and shine. It's time for your day. Let's get ready for school. And the child, instead of jumping out of bed and smiling, pulls the covers over their head and says, you can't make me get up. I'm not going to school. I hate it there. I hate everything about it, right? And so the parent then is a little defeated and they say, well, you got to get up. And they go and start getting ready for their day. And they come in five minutes later and the child's still in bed. So now the rise and shine is gone, right? They're grabbing the child by the ankles and yanking the child out of the bed and uh, trying to get the child um, to get dressed. Here's your clothes, get dressed. And uh, they go and start, maybe there's a sibling that has to get ready too. And they come back in and the child has one sock on and is playing with some Legos in the corner. And now you see the steam start to come out of their ears, right? You're going to be late for the bus. Get dressed and get downstairs. And this is maybe a third grade student. They're still micromanaging, putting on socks, putting on a shirt, brushing your teeth, washing your face, getting uh, downstairs for breakfast. And then it doesn't stop there, right? Then they sit down for breakfast and the child maybe impulsively tries to grab something his sister has and uh, spills the orange juice all over the table, including all the papers that the parent was probably trying to bring to work that day. And now the steam's really coming out of their ears. Sit down, have your breakfast. I got to clean this up. And it doesn't stop there, right? They're walking down to the bus and the parents bringing them there. And uh, 
unlike all the other parents and kids who are congregating together at the bus stop, when they see this child and this parent coming, the families actually turn their backs and shepherd their kids over to another part of the corner. And the mom's under her breath saying, you better not be kicking those stones all over the place. The other parent got really mad at that, gave me a dirty look about that yesterday. And wouldn't you know it as soon as they walk up, whoops, the stone just got kicked right into that crowd of people. And it doesn't stop there, right? They get on the bus and the child, the bus driver says, good morning uh, to each child. And then that child walks on and the bus driver says, you, you're sitting right behind me. Yesterday, you were causing all kinds of commotion in the back. We're not having that again. And that's not where third graders sit, right? That's where kindergartners sit. So the kid's getting little spitballs thrown at them and teasing, you're a baby. And it doesn't stop there, right? Now he gets off the bus and the bus aides, good morning, good morning. And before the child even has a chance to step off the stair of the bus, you better not run. And he's getting pre-corrected with a reprimand, right? Before he even had a chance to do it. And it doesn't stop there. He gets to the classroom. And unlike all the other kids who sit down, hang up their coat, start their bell work, He's uh, maybe in the back looking at the fish tank or talking to somebody out there. And so the first thing his teacher says to him is, why aren't you paying attention and sitting down and getting started on your work? And it hasn't even been an hour in this kid's day. And already there's been more reprimands, demands, commands, corrective feedback than most students in that classroom will get in the entire school year for them, right? He, they're all concentrated in this one kid. So if there's only one thing people take away from today's talk, I would say that we need to be more positive and catch kids with ADHD being good more frequently, label the good things they're doing so that we can try as hard as we can to tip that scale more towards the positive. If we don't, it's no wonder that when we set up our positive behavioral support plans and the teacher tries it out and it doesn't work the first day, uh, that's not a surprise, right? Because we're trying to unwind the damage of this child's learning history about that I'm, I'm always going to get into trouble. Things always are going to screw up. It's not surprising that kids take the default of shutting down and putting their head down or lashing out and talking back because that just cuts to the chase, right? If I'm going to get in trouble anyway, eventually, I might as well not do this work I really dislike. I'll at least get something out of it for me. So uh, I think that's probably the biggest thing that's missing. And if we look at natural rates of praise and positive feedback in schools, it's not so bad in kindergarten or first grade, but it drops precipitously through the rest of elementary school and it's almost zero in high school. Um, that might be okay if you're a kid that's getting uh, at a boys and at a girls every once in a while with a, a lot of, without a lot of reprimands or demands or commands. But if you're a kid that isn't getting those at a boys or at a girls and you're getting all the negative feedback dumped on you, it's not surprising you kind of opt out of school eventually. That was a little bit of a rant, but I think it's an important thing to think about because uh, putting ourselves in the shoes of the kids we're working with, I, I think is important. Yeah, yeah, that was really helpful because it's it's hard to remember all the time when you're looking at just one moment. Like even if, mm -hmm. if you're doing an FBA, like it, it's hard to just remember that the, the kid is has this like backpack, you know, of <laughs> negativity. Yeah. Yeah, it made me think of I mean, like, you know, learned helplessness and those, you know, early studies that you learn about in undergrad about, you know, just punishing and, and how that kind of then give up and like, why, yeah, why would I try? Because it's not going to be any different. I'm still going to be in trouble. So I might as well just sit here and put my head down. And when you look at the evidence base of what works with kids, it isn't all the negative things. In fact, adults are really great at the negative things. You know, we're good at timeouts and taking away privileges and yelling and correcting. 
you don't need to go to a training program to learn to do those things. That's happening in every school and every home across America, right? What doesn't happen as well, and what's actually harder, I think, sometimes for the adults to do is to put in the effort to not just let sleeping dogs lie. Okay, things are going well here, so I'm going to ignore that and move on to something else. To really, as a discipline, attend to when things are going right. Because for every kid, including those with ADHD that we work with, they have lots and lots and lots of examples of appropriate behavior, uh, use of social skills, production of work. Uh, that has to be captured because we know down the line we're going to be having to deal with some times where maybe they're not doing what they're supposed to be doing. We want to invest in, the, in them in those good instances. So we do have to correct or uh, give feedback. It's just within this context of a more positive relationship that you've developed over time. And we know that that's when um, the whole concert together will work the best of different interventions. Oh, do you, I was, um, I just thought of uh, Russ Barkley, who often says um, kids with ADHD are about 30% like younger developmentally in their, in their skills. Do you find that to be true? Are they, are they much younger in this? So it, yeah, that's a, it's a great point. If you look at the DSM criteria for ADHD, it says that the child exhibits developmentally inappropriate levels of inattention, overactivity, and impulsivity. So if I'm doing a consult in a preschool class, the, what's developmentally inappropriate for inattention and overactivity is quite different than if I'm in a ninth grade class, right? If I'm in the preschool, I have plenty of examples of inattention and overactivity across all the kids in that whole class the whole day, right? And, and I would really be looking for, is there a kid that stands out even beyond the kids that are already uh, inattentive or can't sit on that rug too long or maybe um, not keeping their hands to themselves all the time? Uh, uh, one of my colleagues, um, at Buffalo made this point to me, uh, Larry Hawk, uh, they were doing some neurocognitive testing on kids with ADHD and without ADHD. And there was a difference between um, the kids with and without ADHD. And we did a study uh, working with some adolescents with ADHD a few years later, and we used the same battery of assessments. And the performance, so there was a difference at uh, 10, 11 years old between children with ADHD and children without ADHD. And the children's with ADHD's performance in adolescence looked very similar to the kids without ADHD at 10 or 11 years old. So it wasn't that they couldn't do the neurocognitive tasks uh, as well as well. It just took them longer to get to that level of being able to do that. And so you can see how that's immediately going to cause friction in a typical group classroom setting, right? A teacher has a show that has to go on. And if there's a kid that's lagging and not getting the work done in time or not uh, following directions as quickly, that's going to cause challenges for managing the whole class uh, in an effective way. I'm picturing all, you know, all the intervention team meetings that my schools have um, where so often inattention, ADHD type symptoms are the referral, the reason for referral. And it, it, you know, anytime though, it's like, oh, well, increase praise or <laughs> it's like, oh, well, we do that. We try that. It, it doesn't work. And, um, you know, I feel like as a school psychologist, I've definitely gone into classrooms and tallied like, you know, positive interaction, negative interaction. You want that like, you know, four to one ratio type of thing. And it's embarrassingly 
negative. I mean, ridiculously negative. And then like to go, I almost, I feel bad for the teacher to have to tell them that this is, this is what's actually happening in your classroom. Um, and so, yeah, I, I don't, I, I feel like we need to do all these things that you're talking about. And the, the response that we sometimes get as school psychologists is, oh, yeah, we do that. That's that that's what we do. And it's like, no, it's not. <laughs> that, that is one of the challenges. You, you bring up a, a really frank point, right? We're, we're not talking about some special sauce, right? This isn't something that doesn't exist that we're going to bring into the school by with a fancy consultant and all kinds of, you know, great apps or, or those sorts of things. We're talking about the sorts of things that, uh, that happen in adult-child interactions, that happen in peer-to-peer -peer interactions, that happen in terms of how you, you might structure your environment, and doing them in a more effective and more efficient way, right? That That's really what we're talking about. And so that does... Uh, lend itself to somebody saying, oh, yeah, I'm already doing that. And I'm guilty of that myself, right? We are all gross overestimators of our own ability or performance or competence. That's why we're healthy, right? That we feel good about ourselves and have good self-esteem. Uh, I, I think your point is a good one. Uh, tally marks that actually show you know, what is the, the rate of praise in this classroom? Com uh, not just how many times you say, uh, good job, which we, we might also tweak and say, well, we're not going to just say good job. We're going to say good job for the way that you finished that work on time, or that was nice the way that you uh, cooperated with your peer in this uh, peer-assisted learning strategy. And, and not only increase praise, but also reduce commands, demands, reprimands. So every time I tell that child, sit down, come over here, put that back, uh, put your shoe back on, uh, get, put that pencil back, uh, put that back in your desk. What do you have over there, right? Those are all demands that I'm putting on the kid. All the times that I tell them to cut it out, pay attention, look up here, those are all demands I'm putting on the kid. Those are all negatives. And if we're tallying not only the positives, but also the negatives, we would hope, you know, the, the general guidelines are, are um, three to one positives for every one of those commands, demands, reprimands. But you're right, uh, it's normal that that's flipped around in the reverse, that there's 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 going to be more negatives. And, and that's, a, I think, something that's worth bigger discussions on some of the school problem solving teams is how do we all marshal together and figure out how do we make our climate in our schools more positive, not just for the child with ADHD, but for all children, uh, because that will only help the kid with ADHD. But it's not, I agree with you, it's not easy. And people drift. So when we run intensive summer treatment programs, we have to go in every single day and watch those classrooms and provide feedback. Because if you just go a few days without any um, support from somebody uh, observing or watching, uh, it's much, unfortunately, much easier to just reprimand or point out what you don't like than it is to also comment on what you do like. So I don't know that I have an answer for that tonight. <laughs> that one's a, a tricky one, but I think it is the answer to helping kids with ADHD succeed better in schools. In some instances, uh, I think overly reprimanding and correcting kids can be more disruptive than the behavior itself sometimes. Just um, interrupting the own flow of your, your own flow of teaching, your own flow of instruction, um, you know, I think some things especially could certainly be ignored or, um, you know, I, I think you're absolutely right. We, we probably need schools to do better behavior coaching 
um, and, you know, helping teachers with classroom management um, for, you know, just for general kids, uh, which I think would help our kids with ADHD as well. Yeah, I'm curious to hear if you have the same experience I do. When I go and talk to schools and do in-services, when we talk about tier one, I mentioned the good behavior game and I say, raise your hand if you do the good behavior game. And maybe one teacher per school will say, yeah, I'm familiar with that or I'm not using it right now. Uh, that's a technology that is elegant in its simplicity and makes a huge difference in the classroom ecology in terms of how peer attention uh, is directed and what it's kind of reinforcing. It makes teachers' lives easier because they don't have to be micromanaging all the behaviors. You really get the kids on your side to do that for you. And it creates a positive classroom environment where you're uh, rewarding kids for doing things the right way as opposed to taking away for doing things the wrong way. And it works just as well if you have ADHD as if you don't have ADHD. And uh, maybe there's some kids that you wouldn't have to do more intensive things for if you were doing really good universal interventions. I, I appreciate your point. I think it's a good one. Yeah, and I love the good behavior game, by the way. <laughs> and uh, I think... Um, I don't know if it's teachers have so many initiatives or so many things. Sometimes I, I am in different buildings and, um, uh, you know, throughout my district, as well as um, supporting school psychologists around the state through our state association. And I find that I'm running into um, teachers who will say things like, oh, well, we do PBS in my bill, PBIS in my building. So we don't do this or we're a uh, uh, conscious discipline school, so we don't do PBIS. And it becomes very dichotomized rather than understanding, you know, connecting with children in a, a positive rapport and building a positive climate and culture. Um, and, we, and we sort of compartmentalize the way we approach behavior support sometimes. And that becomes uh, farther removed from being child-centered, right? If if those are things that aren't working for a child in the school right now, I don't think it's fair to say, okay, well, sorry, we can't help you because we're using this particular approach or this particular philosophy. Uh, our job should be to give every child a fair shot and a fair shake and figure out how we can uh, help them with all the tools that we have. And we, and anybody that works with kids knows that what works for one isn't going to work for another one that you have to, I mean, it's one of the great things about this field, right? That it, you have lots of opportunities for creativity and problem solving, and uh, you have an opportunity to work with other people uh, towards a common goal. And I think that's something that uh, maybe we could emphasize more when working on some of the child study teams, where as opposed to, um, you know, more of a bureaucratic mechanism where we're bringing a referral and we're figuring figure out what we're going to do with this referral. If we could figure out how to free up some of the, the smart people that are in every building across America to be able to do some of that problem solving and follow up, which is where I think it often breaks down, uh, we could do a better job by way of the kids. I had a question I wanted to go back to when you were referencing um, the how, you know, the younger students in the kindergarten classroom being more likely to be. And I remember reading about that, um, that the birth date, um, the month that you were born in can predict how likely, you know, increases your likelihood of, of being diagnosed with ADHD, um, you know, depending on, again, the cut point of the, the, the school district. So when you compare against districts, you don't see the same, you know, in the same way, it kind of shifts based on um, that cut point. I, I, I guess... I don't know that I have a question about that, but 
like, what do, what do we, what should we do, I guess, as school psychologists? And I am kind of mindful once I was aware of that. Um, when I have young kids, I'll, I will ask the teacher, look up the birthday and see, like, are they young for their, for their grade? But um, just so, but then at the same time, I'm doing my Connors and do my rating scales or whatever. And like, if they've met criteria, I'm kind of like, I, I to, to over, I don't know. Is that like overriding? Oh, but they're young, so I'm not going to count it. Or how, <laughs> what do I do about? Yeah, I mean, I mean, you could be young for the grade and also meet criteria for ADHD or have a learning disability. That's certainly possible. I think maybe the take-home message is, is to disentangle diagnoses and labels from um, being able to provide good immediate support for the child at the moment when they need it. And so if I had a child entering kindergarten that was having tantrums uh, starting in the afternoon every day, uh, and maybe they were young for the grade, uh, and maybe they on a checklist meet criteria for ADHD, I might first do a little bit of uh, conversations with the teacher and parent first. I might do some problem solving to see if there were some simple behavioral uh, modifications we could make to the classroom environment or the schedule, or maybe there's a way we could use a simple reward uh, system after nap time when these tantrums were starting to encourage the child to um, follow the structure and the routine, and then maybe experience the natural rewards of just having a positive afternoon in school and stacking a few of those together. Before I were to jump to a recommendation like you need to go see the pediatrician about this, or uh, we need to refer this child to uh, the Committee on Special Education, because they're never going to make it in first grade at this rate, right? And maybe to acknowledge that kids develop at different rates and different levels, especially at the youngest grades, right? When we look at those data, by third or fourth grade, we see some more condensation of kids together. There's less of these intravariability bands that are really wide. Uh, that, I think, um, would be the, the best approach. And also be mindful, maybe to educate teachers more and school psychologists more to be, like just like you said, to be a little thoughtful about, are there other extenuating circumstances that might be causing this behavior I'm seeing that maybe need to be addressed in a different way than the standard approach that we're using. And, and to really go back to what we all learned in graduate school, right? Good functional behavioral assessments. So think about the antecedents and the consequences that are maintaining behaviors. Are there setting events that might be um, triggering what's happening here? And what do we have the control to tweak ourselves that might change these behaviors we're seeing and make them more adaptive for the child who's struggling? So that makes me think about something also we talked a little bit about offline. Um, there are lots of behaviors that could look on a rating scale, you know, couldn't sort of meet the symptom criteria for ADHD, but actually be co something completely different, like, like a trauma response to trauma or, um, or maybe a hidden learning disability that's making the kid avoid, um, focusing or putting in an effort um, to, to things that are just hard. And I wonder when you talk about that pathway of like getting kid, young kids on the pathway of support early, do you think that that, if we did that in all grades, across grades, like kind of just addressed the, um, the skills that the child needs to learn to be more successful, mm -hmm. um, do you think that that would then, then we'd actually get a reduction in the ADHD um, referrals or numbers in our schools. And and do you think that right now we're 
over identifying kids? It seems like, like Rachel said, we, we get the, the referral question all the time. This kid can't pay attention. He can't focus. He never he can't organize his material. Like all of those, you know, they've read enough rating scales to kind of know. <laughs> and, and to some degree, I think we've given too much power to the rating scales and the diagnostic criteria. So the DSM criteria were uh, expressly developed to have no etiology embedded within their um, diagnostic categories. So uh, ADHD is in the DSM is these constellation of symptoms and there's really no way to, to add into that uh, what might cause them. And, and that is problematic. Take the symptom, for example, often does not seem to listen when spoken to directly. Well, that could be an intention problem, right? Could be an oppositional or defiant behavior. Could be a hearing impairment. It could have something that has nothing to do with the kid at all. It could be the teachers giving terrible commands and instructions that are impossible for the kid to comply with because they don't understand what the teacher is really trying to say. Uh, and yet, if that's checked very much on a checklist, it gets the same weight for ADHD diagnosis than something else. And I would say in my work, I find the diagnosis to be less and less important to me over time. It's something I really don't pay as much attention to. We give the checklists and uh, we, we have to for many of our research studies. But when I'm really working with an individual kid, I focus on exactly what you're saying. I wanna know what are the areas of impairment that I would need to improve to make this child's quality of life better? Do I have to improve their peer relationship skills? Do I have to improve their ability to be productive in their academics? Or do I have to improve their ability to achieve in their academics, right? Those are two different things. Do I need to help them in their adult parent-child uh, parent, uh, relationships or teacher-child relationships? I have to reduce those areas of impairment, and I have to figure out where I need to build skills. Do I have to build their tolerance for boredom, right? Do I have to be able to help them, um, not maybe not in a one-on-one -on -one activity, but in a small group activity, that's where they're having uh, trouble negotiating those kinds of peer interactions. Uh, I have to do both of those things if I'm going to be a successful clinician or supporter for this kid. And the diagnosis is irrelevant to those questions, right? I, I would could address those questions whether I did an ADHD checklist or not. And so maybe that's something that we can do a better job with in schools is focusing really on impaired areas of functioning that need to be reduced and skill areas that are deficits that need to be increased. And if we could do that with kids, I think you're exactly right. We would have fewer kids where we would have um, parents saying, I need more help or I need to go outside the school for help. We would be helping the kids succeed, which is all every parent and teacher wants, right? They just want this child to be successful just like everybody else and not lagging behind or struggling or challenged. And uh, if, we can, if we can do that, I think uh, that's the answer, right? Then we don't need to worry about any of these other diagnostic ch checklists or outside referrals because the kid would be functioning well in, in doing what they're supposed to. Then there's no need for other treatment. And that's kind of like a, a perspective that I also have been taking like more and more as I've been in the field that with, with other, with DSM in general, with these eligibility categories in general, like they're just very broad generalizations of these symptoms that kind of maybe go together, but one kid with ADHD, one kid with LD, one kid with, it's so different from any, any other kid that it's, it's kind of meaningless. Like, like you said, like the, the diagnosis itself, just like we've talked a lot about dyslexia and just knowing, okay, dyslexia, like that doesn't tell you how to intervene with dyslexia. It depends on the, the skills that the child is lacking and what you where you need to build that up. 
And so it's the same thing. And we do, we get totally hung up on these labels and categories uh, out of necessity, out of legal reasons. You know, we're told you need to classify, you need to diagnose, they need to meet criteria. They, instead of, unfortunately, you know, focusing on, on what you're talking about, just focusing on where, what the deficit is, like what the delay is, what where they need support. And what's sad about that is we're a tertiary clinic. So we get calls from parents who have already been through the uh, Committee on Special Education. Their child has an IEP. They've been to the doctor. They're on a stimulant or sometimes multiple psychoactive medications. And the parents are still calling us saying, I want to be in one of your research studies. And my child is failing three classes and doesn't have any friends. And the teacher is saying that they don't uh, that he was sick and it was such a nice day in the class without that child in the class that day, right? These these are really uh, severe impairments that the child is still experiencing. And then we work with them and set up a daily report card where we set some goals for the child that are tailored to where they are. We really press the parent to provide daily positive consequences for meeting those goals and achieving on them. And we see differences in behavior, right? When we go in and monitor uh, pre-intervention to post-intervention findings. Uh, what, what it is is not really rocket science. It's just working together to get everybody together on the same team, sending a clear message to the child on what's expected of them and what's gonna happen to them if they meet the goals, which is the opposite of what usually happens, right? They misbehave and now all of a sudden they've lost their all their privileges for weeks. And uh, most of them would say, well, if I could go back in time, I wouldn't have uh, said that one thing if I knew I was gonna not have my video games for the next three weeks. Uh, it, instead, it uh, lays out for the child in a very fair way what the, what's the contingencies are. And uh, it's a reward-based program. So we're focusing on the child working towards doing the right thing as opposed to what often happens, we're scolding them for doing the wrong thing. And, and that does work. So I think that uh, we do have the tools. The question is how can we get them to be applied more uniformly and more effectively and, and also efficiently because there is no question teachers are overworked and overstretched right now, uh, maybe more so than ever before. I wanted to ask about, um, I remember being in uh, in your lab and there was discussion of, and, and then I left and went off on internship, but there's discussion about um, technology to look at driving with, with, with children who, who, adolescents with ADHD who then go and get their licenses. And um, I think there was talks about, you know, I, I, I and I don't know if, if insurance companies like charge higher rates for kids with, with diagnosis or whatnot, or, or how, did that, whatever happened with, with that, did you go on to study that? Um, what, is, what does that look like? So if you, if you just imagine for a moment a child with ADHD in elementary school that uh, impulsively shouts out or doesn't always make the best decisions uh, or, or maybe doesn't pay attention really well, and then you fast forward to 16 or 17 years old and you put them at a busy intersection making a left-hand turn with oncoming traffic, how those symptoms of ADHD could impair you. And uh, we know teenagers are by far the worst drivers on the roadway. If you ha are a teenager with ADHD, you're significantly more at risk for accidents, accidents that cause injury, even dying in a car, than the most at-risk group, teenagers. And so it is a group that warrants intervention. And we did a family therapy approach uh, 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 towards intervention with adolescents with ADHD. And this turned out to be great timing. So anybody that's ever worked with teenagers know they don't do anything you tell them to do, right? They think everything is, is the worst. And any time a parent might suggest an intervention, they would put it down. 
But we found out that the transition to driving was a good entree uh, to working with teens because they were motivated to, for the independence that the driving could bring them. And so they were willing to go along with attending uh, clinical sessions with their parents. And, and parents of teenagers uh, with ADHD are literally exhausted by the time they have a, an individual with ADHD. They're looking forward to 18 or 20 when maybe um, they can um, take a break from being a 100% parent to the child with ADHD. But driving is so anxiety provoking for them that they uh, are willing to sign on for another intervention at that point too. So our attendance at this family-focused intervention was close to 100%. Uh, and then we were able to use technology in a way to monitor uh, teens' behavior while they were driving um, using uh, uh, onboard cameras. Some of you may have seen them if you're in a, an Uber or a taxi cab or something like that. Um, they, they continuously record, but they continuously delete unless something happens, like a swerve or a hard break. And you might think about the teenager on their cell phone texting something and they look up, oh no, they have to slam on the brakes because they're almost going to rear end somebody. If you got a lot of those kinds of abrupt driving events, that would be a marker that you needed to um, do something about it. And we and we taught parents and teens how to negotiate together and establish behavioral contracts for driving uh, that were based on the event triggered recorders in their car. And so teens had to keep their speed below a certain level and they could maintain privileges or if they didn't have so many hard brakes, they could maintain privileges. And now uh, there are apps that are on the phone that uh, most parents routinely use to monitor where their kid is with or where their kid is or who they're with. Uh, but those also typically include driving outcomes as well. So one of the promising things about the research we have done now is that it's much easier for parents to uh, get the data that will inform their decisions about their teen and their teen's driving privileges and, and hopefully maintain their safe entry to the roadway. Because if you can get through that first year of licensure, what most of the uh, evidence shows is that you're gonna be a safe driver and your risk goes way down after that. In fact, your risk after that first year of licensure comes mostly from the people who are now in their first year of licensure driving on the road and they might hit you. So uh, that first year is a really important time for parents to um, really focus and pay attention to what their kid's doing and, and make sure they're safe. And, and if you rely only on driver's ed, what some, recent, what some meta-analyses have shown is that there's actually a, a slight negative effect of driver's education because it may have the effect of parents saying, I can wash my hands of having to do anything about driving anymore. My kid passed the driver's ed course. And that's not correct, right? Uh, once they become independent drivers, you have to continue to monitor and manage what they're doing. That is super interesting. That is really interesting. And it makes me, I have young kids that aren't close to, to driving, but I definitely, um, when, when that happens, I'm going to be looking into apps and, and downloading that because I really, I never thought about that, that apps could be tracking the speed and, and braking and, and things of that nature. So that's really cool. Yeah. And, and uh, I'm also going to go to my husband because he took driver's ed and I did not. <laughs> and he maintains that he's a better driver. I'm going to say, well, <laughs> maybe that's not true. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. I liked um, something you said, Greg, uh, early on, um, just reminded me that our interventions are really based out of that single subject case design model. And um something that when I'm working with uh, interns that I'm trying to get them to focus on when we're doing interventions is that we can really collect baseline data, provide our interventions and progress monitor and, and sort of simplify that approach as a single subject uh, design. Um, I think it, 
it's so valuable in in interventions from academics to uh, behavior that um, you know I think as school psychologists that's something we can embrace in, in you know that uh, RTI sort of model. Probably the best ADHD treatment example I ever saw was an old case study Atkins Pelham and White, which ended up in a book chapter. I guess there's a long story about how it didn't end up in Java that uh, we could talk about another day, but. Um, uh, it's a really elegant description of a pretty difficult child who is not succeeding in class with good baseline data and then systematically introducing behavioral supports, medication, peer-mediated supports, a withdrawal of interventions. And by the end of the two months of the case study, you knew exactly what worked for this child so that you could make a really good, strong recommendation of what to continue doing. And that probably helped that child way more than, you know, a one-time committee meeting or a few days of data collection or one behavioral checklist that uh, Vanderbilt that the pediatrician sent in. Uh, now, that I know that um, people say, well, yeah, that's going to take a lot of resources and a lot of time, but I, I might argue that we do have the resources and the time. We're just diverting them to other types of tasks that don't help, aren't child-centered, right? They don't really directly help the child in the long run, uh, which is our mission. That's our job. And all this, too, is, is like it's a good reminder for me because – Again, like I don't even, I mean, I think in terms of behavioral modifications and how to do this, do you recommend like when you're mentioning an FBA, do you recommend like a full FBA for kids or just thinking in terms of antecedent consequences and what their function is and whatnot? In my schools, most of the times they're reserving FBAs for like the kids that's throwing the chairs. Mm -hmm. Like, you know, FBAs seem to take a long time and resources. And in my district, at least it's a team-based approach. And so you got to get everybody together. And so they really kind of you know, don't go through that unless it's a kid that's really behaviorally um, struggling. So are your average, you know, ADHD kid in my district does not get an FBA. Um, should they be? That's a good point. So maybe that's the capital FBA, right? That's the one that's part of the uh, process to determine um, what kinds of formal supports or interventions are going to be put in place. But a skilled school psychologist could go into a classroom and tell pretty quickly, is this behavior escape maintained? Is this to gain attention? Is this, um, you know, is a child just bored and trying to get some stimulation for themselves uh, because this is a uh, not a very interesting task for them? And there are logical recommendations you could make to a teacher based on what your hypothesized function was. And so I think that maybe that's what's missing is these more um, immediate consultations to try something out to, to see if something uh, might work for that teacher's own uh, values as an educator and approach to managing their classroom that might reduce the intensity of what's causing the problems or the challenges for the kid. And um that, and that might be a, a way that some of these child support and study teams and problem solving teams in schools could extend in a way that might make more immediate differences for kids. In much the way we've done for some of the um, um, academic outcomes, right, where we've tried out immediately small groups or some different intervent reading interventions for kids that are having challenges. Um, the problem with um, behavioral challenges is you can't do small groups for interrupting the teacher, right? You have to almost always uh, create an idiosyncratic or individualized approach, which does mean it's going to take more resources.
I'm seeing that we have two really good questions in the chat box. So I know that we're, we're wrapping up, um, but maybe we can get to some of these. So um, Nick wanted to know, um, hey. different cultures play a role in um, different ADHD symptoms with students. What are your what are your take, what is your take there? So uh, I would say uh, ab absolutely that context always rules the day when we think about ADHD related symptoms and different expectations from the adults around the child, uh, different tolerance levels for certain behaviors, certain different environments can cause uh, the um, child symptoms to either show up more or show up less, and. Uh, also, we have to understand um, the cultural point of view of the parent who might be uh, coming to us with a question about their child's behavior or interacting with a teacher who might have a different point of view about what they're thinking about the child's behavior might be like. And I think the best way to address that is to uh, make sure that we understand each of the lenses that individuals are looking through. And ultimately, as we've said multiple times today, keep the child at the center of the discussion that uh, ultimately we want to make sure that we do right by the child. And that often includes uh, a understanding of their um, cultural background and um, uh, what um, what they might be interpreting some of the things in the classroom that are going on, what they might be interpreting them like. It's a good question. And then we had a question from Chitty, who said, um, how to how much consideration should we give in gender differences in students with ADHD as they develop specifically in high school? So we do know that ADHD is more commonly diagnosed in boys than girls, although uh, some more contemporary work has uh, wondered whether or not that uh, because girls may be more likely to have the inattentive type present than inattentive presentation, whether that we might be missing some of the uh, inattentive symptoms in a, a quiet child who's maybe not paying attention in the classroom and more attention is going to a kid who's running around out of their chair or interrupting frequently or, or that sort of thing. I guess I would go back to uh, what we talked about before that uh, ultimately we want every kid to have a fair shake at being successful in school. And uh, th that means we need to be carefully evaluating how every student in the classroom is ex excelling and performing and, uh, and what their particular needs might be and not to have an approach, well, that child doesn't bother anybody. They don't always get their work done, or I'm not always sure that they're understanding what we're talking about, but I have bigger uh, fish to fry in this classroom. That that, that approach can't uh, carry the day. It has to be that we pay just as much attention to a child that might have some of the inattentive problems early on. Both really good questions. Thank you. All right, well, we're looking for kind of last minute comments and whatnot. We're gonna um, start to wrap up from this conversation. This has been a really good reminder to me though, again, that I've, I've got to think more in terms of my behavioralism <laughs> type of um, you know, functions of behavior and whatnot, because I feel like it is so easy to get, you hear everybody else on the MTSS team being like, yeah, try this, try that. And they put out all these things and like, we're just, not going back to kind of those basic, really evidence-based old school strategies that have, you know, 100 years of research behind them as far as, you know, reinforcement and, and things like that. And we're kind of overlooking those, I think, for things that are shiny or new or different. And um, so, yeah, I'm going to go back to my teams and be like, well, <laughs> let's, let's try and look at this a little bit differently than normal. Um, 
But yeah, um, so our next, uh, before we wrap up, I want to remind everyone our next episode um, is 319. Um, and Rebecca, I think you coordinated that one. Do you want to give people a little heads up on what that's about? Sure, absolutely. I hope you can all join us in a couple of weeks for that episode. It is with one of the founders of the Psyched to Practice podcast, Dr. Ray uh, Krishner. And he's going to come on and talk about CB. CBT in schools. And I'm also really excited to talk about his um, podcast. I don't know if any of you all listen, but it's really good. And he has a similar intention, I think, as we do. Um, he wants, um, along with his co-host, to blend information, resources, and collaboration for school mental health folks. So I think it'll be a really good episode. And uh, I like that we're um, fellow travelers on this, on this road. So join us in a couple of weeks. Awesome. Thank you so much, Dr. Fabiano, for, um, for joining us. And uh, yeah, good conversation. Thanks yes. for the invitation. Great conversation. Thank you. Thank good night, you. everybody.